Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for downloading it. I'm currently uh, in the passenger seat of a rental car driving through, uh, would you call this regional? Yeah. Regional New South Wales with the executive producer on this project I've been working on. And uh, we're on our way to dinner after a long day of shooting. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't going to let you get away without a podcast this week. So thanks for downloading it. Now, if this is your first time listening, hey, thanks. You will probably understand that podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So you might hear an ad right now. Now, if you hear an ad, thank you. You're helping me pay Andy Ma, my audio producer, and Rachel Barrett, my show producer. If you don't hear an ad, Ripper Beauty, you win the free podcast today. But if you do, thanks. Here we go. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think that one of the real shortcomings of the system of work is that by and large, it's still really hard to figure out what's right for us. And we get born into a set of opportunities more than anything else. You learn a set of skills when you're young, and then you do that thing for the next 30 or 40 years. I don't think that suits us. You know, the work that we start with when we're in our mid-20s might not be the same when we're in our mid-30s, but the system of work has a lot of barriers that prevent us from changing. It's really hard to reinvent yourself. And I think if there's something that's going to come out of the COVID era, the thing I'd put my money on is that there will be a lot more permission and need for everybody to reinvent themselves. There's going to be this trend towards lifelong learning or to adaptiveness. Fundamentally, my belief is that as humans, we are very adaptive and we have the capacity to learn new things much more than we know. But the construct of a career hasn't supported that type of a learning journey. I think that time is gone. That is Australian entrepreneur, co-founder of The Iconic and co-founder of Hatch, Adam Jacobs. And this, well, this is episode 364 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, apologies. This is another one of me in the car doing the intro. It happens from time to time with my job is that I will occasionally speak into my phone. But, you know, sometimes I'm in the studio at home and that's fine. But today, I don't know, you're getting a bit of roadside ambience from the bendy, windy roads of the rural bit of Australia that we're in. But, you know, it sounds the same. It's just going to be... I love it when they get from a, a, a noisy road to a quiet road. Don't you love that? 
it's really nice. I often describe that as like how it, when I came off meds the second time, when I came off the tricyclics, it was like going from a butter soft piece of brand new smooth freeway, like the one that you drive down the Gold Coast, to hitting a dirt road that had seen three wet seasons and no greater with just a massive corner coming up <laughs> straight away. And just went, that's what the road felt like. Anyway, that was a long tangent. Um, thanks for being here. This is better than yesterday. And um, this is a podcast that comes out twice a week. Mondays I speak with the guest, Fridays I speak with you. And uh, something you hear on the show will help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's the promise of the gig. There's 363 other episodes. Mondays, like I said, I have a guest on. Fridays, it's just a check-in, talk with you. And who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host and a podcaster and an author and a dad and a possum rescuer, as you'll find out in a minute. And I'm from Sydney, Australia. Yeah, I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. And I'm grateful to be here. Thanks very much for all the uh, love that came our way on, on Twitch. Uh, twitch.tv slash Osher Ginsburg. Uh, you'll often find me riding my bicycle there. When I say riding my bicycle, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm doing while I have a chat. So Twitch is a very immersive kind of conversational experience that I really enjoy. You know, it's a way to connect with people online, which I really like. Um, so you just jump on twitch.tv slash Osher Ginsburg and it's free to sign up, free to get an account. And it'll just let you know when I'm on. And sometimes I get on and ride a bike and have a chat and talk to people and it's fun. Sometimes I sing songs. Someone challenged me to sing for three minutes while I was riding a bike up a hill the other day. That was hard, but it was good. Uh, I have to sing everything, like for three minutes, yeah. Like the long, sorry, my boss is asking me. When they, they redeem channel points, it's like they get like channel points the longer they watch, and then they can redeem those channel points. Like for 100 channel points, I'll take a sip out of my water bottle. For 5,000 channel points, I will sing for three straight minutes. And there's one particular person that watches quite a bit, has been saving those channel points up and was waiting for me to be riding on a particularly hard day and hit go. I was like, all right, I guess everything I speak, I have to sing for three straight minutes. So essentially I sang an opera for three minutes. It's pretty easy to sing everything, but it's not unlike what I do generally, as you've heard me. You heard me singing the Where Are My Glasses song just before. Exactly. Yeah, I I do it all the time. Twitch.tv slash Ginsburg is where you can uh, find me. I think we're about to pass the Tackle Shack. If you know what the Tackle Shack is, then you know what part of the world I'm in. Thanks for the emails as well. Send Osher email at gmail.com is my email address. I was going to tell you about the possums. Yeah, I'll tell you about the possums. You know we've got possums. We had possums. We had possums in our roof. And before we start talking to Adam, I'm going to tell you about the possums. Yes, because that's what's going to happen. It's my podcast. So we had possums in our roof, as you know. And we had about four or five of them up there, including a baby one. And we got the possums out. Noisy road. Whoa. We got the possums out. And we built a box in the back tree so the possums would have somewhere to go because they're very territorial creatures. And a few days after we had the possums out of that roof, we went and checked on the box. And sure enough, two possums were living in there. Uh, Mum possum we called Scarlet and a boy possum, little boy, Joey, we called Scott. Scott was quite little at the time. And I took a photo of Scarlet and I, and I put it up on Instagram going, hey, our possums found the box and they're living there now. They're not in our roof. Everything's groovy. And someone noticed on the Instagram, look out for that thing on her back. That looks like dermatitis and they can get pretty nasty. So keep an eye on it. So we kept an eye on it. But you don't want to disturb the possums too much because a giant face, you know, looming into their little possum hole will freak them out. So just every now and again, I'd get up there and have a look. And sure enough, it was getting worse. And then yesterday, I I stuck my phone in the possum hole 
uh, in the hole of the box and take a photo and it had gotten significantly worse. It was quite clear that we needed to get her help. So I called WIRES, um, Wildlife Injury Rescue Emergency Services, I think that's the acronym. I called WIRES and they sent a volunteer around to help me out. And in the meantime, I, you know, I called a vet and the vet talked me through it and said, yeah, the dermatitis, we can treat it with antibiotics because it gets infected and quite nasty and it can heal, but depending on how advanced it is, you know, we may need to put her to sleep because that's like pretty much all you can do for her. So anyway, it was very hard to get her out of the possum box. Possum box is about as big as a speed camera. If you've ever seen a speed camera on the side of the road, it's, so it's pretty big. Anyway. I had to knock the top of the box off to get her out um, because she was, you know, rightly trying to defend her joey and the joey was trying to defend her. So I pulled the top of the box off. I had two hoodies on and these big gardening gloves. I had two gardening gloves on. And I grabbed her out and as soon as I pulled her out and get a proper look at the wound on the side of her, it was pretty evident that she was... Like, she didn't even fight me when I pulled her out. She could barely fight. She was hissing a lot, but she had no puff in her. She had no... Not much strength in her at all. She was close to close to dying and as I pulled her out everyone like Audrey was holding the ladder and the volunteer from wires was there and as soon as they copped an eyeful of the the wound on the side of her it was pretty clear that Scarlett wasn't going to come home for the vet um, so we got her out and we put her in the little carry case that the volunteer brought with her and off to the vet she went and I put a piece of apple and some eucalyptus leaves in the possum box for little Scott um, and uh, the, the wise lady went off to the vet. She gave me a call and she showed photos of the of the Joey to the vet and the vet said, yeah, the Joey's big enough to make it on his own if he needs to, if, um, if Scarlett's not going to make it. But then a few hours later when the vet had time to look at Scarlett, sure enough, it was clear that she wasn't going to make it. So Scarlett went for the big nap last night. And this morning when I checked the whole you could see that Scott had eaten the eucalyptus leaves that I'd shoved in there. So we think he's going to be okay, but we're going to keep an eye on him to make sure he is. But the thing that was really overwhelming, I think, for all of us is that as soon as the three of us adults, me and Audrey and the volunteer from Wires, as soon as the three of us saw this wound on this animal, we had this visceral, intense, empathic reaction and that we couldn't overall you know this feeling of seeing an animal in pain an animal in distress does something to us and i really started thinking about this that maybe that empathy is wired into us that it's a thing that's helped us survive by looking out for other people in pain and, and trying to help them but it's so much easier to understand it when it's in an animal right a cat or a dog in pain is really it's really difficult for us to be with. We can't bear it if a cat or a dog is crying out of pain. And this, this, this possum, the, the, the size of the wound on it, it was awful and messy and infected and horrible. And just all of us went, oh, my God, poor thing. And it felt in our tummies we could feel it. So I'm, I'm sure that something deep inside us is wired for it. But I guess the wider question is about how that empathy and that, you know, this is another podcast, that empathy when we, the pain and suffering in an animal, that causing that pain and suffering to the animals that we eat, that's an uncomfortable conversation. It's not a conversation for now, but it is a conversation to have. Instead, I guess the question I want to you know, ask about today is like, what happens to 
accessing that empathy inside us that comes so automatically when we see a wounded animal on the side of the road or a pet or, or an animal that we love, a companion animal is hurt. What causes us to not be able to access that so much when a, a human's in pain? Is it because the engaging with that pain and the suffering of the animal is an easy thing to do? It's a simple thing to do? There's no emotion that we can discern on behalf of the animal. That animal doesn't make life choices that we do or don't agree with. It isn't the colour of a skin that we find strange. It's not from a culture that we may have biases towards thanks to stereotypes that we have ingrained within us through the cultural narrative of, I don't know, living in a majority white heteronormative society. It's just an animal making a noise. And we go, ow, that hurts me too, let me help you. Because I guess that's the complexity of it, really, when it comes to extending that immediate empathy to another human, you know. And that's just face-to-face. That's just with another person standing in front of you. Online, it's nearly impossible. How could this person who has written something that we disagree with, perhaps using harsh or even angry language, be worthy of my empathy? Can I see their action as pain? Possibly even pain as great as an animal crying out? It's really very hard to do, isn't it? It's so hard to transcend our biases and learn subconscious judgments. And, you know, before you know it, we're reacting with no empathy at all or worse, echoing back their anger or fear. And that's both about pain, just screaming at each other. I don't know. So I guess off the back of Scarlet passing away, what I'm trying to do is just to try to see those things either online or with people I'm engaging with. It's just, this is just another big eyed mammal in pain. All right. Perhaps it's even a juvenile or an infant animal in pain you know even if the person may be an adult that pain may be from them when they're quite young which let's be honest probably is where most of our pain comes from right because that's kind of easier to access and so that's anyway that's what i'm going to try to start to do essentially i have challenged myself to learn how to do the mental equivalent of installing abs brakes in a collision avoidance system in a car built in 1974 but it's not to say i can't try to do it so anyway that's what i'm going to try and do it Crikey, if you showed up to listen to a great Australian business story, you got a story about a possum. Sorry. And I'm doing all this kind of virtuosic signalling in front of somebody. <laughs> anyway, I'll keep you posted. So, look, before we get to my guest today, I'm going to suggest another podcast to you. So I'd ask you, I'd invite you to scroll back in the podcast feed to another fantastic podcast about another epic Australian entrepreneur, Jane Liu. Jane Liu is the CEO and boss of Showpony, an online shopping behemoth that started when she was at a point of utter despair in her former corporate career. It's a story of building a brilliant business uh, that's nothing short of inspiring. I just like hustled. So the next month we did $9,000 and then we did 41. And then 71. Jesus, in three months. 150. Yeah, we just kept doubling month on month. Holy moly. And at this point, I was doing everything by myself, packing the orders. And I get to the post box, I fill it up, and it's full. So I have to speed to the next suburb, to that post box, fill that up. That was full. And I was like, screw it, I'm going to wait for the postman. And I think that was the moment I was like, shit, I'm onto something. That's Jane Liu, episode 132 of this show. You don't even have to be starting a business, just be listening to the way that she takes this idea and deciding that she's going to do everything she can to make it happen. It's pretty excellent. Almost as excellent as how good those eucalypts are. Look how beautiful they are. What a beautiful eucalyptus trees they are. Oh my. Anyway, so let me tell you about my guest today. 
Adam Jacobs is the co-founder at the Iconic. You know the Iconic. That's right, Iconic. It's the mailman's here. <laughs> you know all about it. It's changed retail in our country in an irreversible way. And you'll be absolutely fascinated to hear how he created the platform, his journey to building it into something that made massive incumbent players like Meyer, David Jones, just have to adjust their entire business plan in just the exact way that they operated. Not satisfied with that, Adam's gone on to co-found and build another new venture. It's called Hatch. And Hatch is, he calls it like recreating the future of work, really. One of the things it's doing is placing highly skilled people uh, who are now out of a job thanks to COVID-19 and you know, generally 2020 being 2020, are highly skilled people, placing them in industries and jobs that they otherwise might not have considered, but using the skill sets that they have to benefit those other places in ways that people had as yet, you know, not suspected would be awesome. He's a fascinating guy. I particularly love in this conversation where he talks about the concept of jobs to be done when it comes to product design and brand creation. No doubt, uh, just on a note as to the timestamp of when we recorded this, you're aware that 2020 has changed so much. And, you know, this last 10 days of Australian history has proved that restrictions and the state of the country and what is okay and not okay and which borders are open and closed and at what stage of lockdown we are, that changes week to week. So this chat was recorded a little while back, but we are discussing the way that things are at that time. But they are most definitely, it's fair to say, those things are that way again for many parts of the world. And they may be that way again for us next week, for all we know. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Adam Jacobs. I don't know how to tell you this, Adam. Like, since uh, I've always, growing up in Brisbane, all right, <laughs> we just didn't have that kind of level of kind of entertainment or stimulation that you might get living in a kind of more sophisticated part of the country. In fact, we still had black and white movies on a Saturday. Mm. on TV because we, I don't know, for some reason couldn't play the rug. I don't know what. Anyway, I would often watch these black and white movies, which are always musicals, and I'd wonder, how does everybody know the words? <laughs> how do they all know how to dance at the same time? And I came to the conclusion, Adam, that I would never get a chance to be in one of these moments unless I just sang narrated my entire life. And so I tend to, and have done since <laughs> I was quite little, sing slash narrate whatever it is that I'm doing. And since Wolf has shown up, since our baby boy has joined our life, mm -hmm. I sing him through whatever it is that's going on. It's beautiful. Your <laughs> life is a musical and you are the composer. Otherwise, I'm never going to get a chance. I love it. All right. I it's <laughs> never going to happen. I'll never be in La La Land, but yeah. I like to try and have those moments every day. <laughs> I have to tell you, when um, when I was growing up, we went on summer holidays, my family, to Port Macquarie every year. My older sister, there's four of us, my older sister would construct uh, musicals. She'd make up stories yeah, for us to, to all be in and brilliant. entertain the family. And she grew up to be a composer of musical theatre. And she's now living in New York and doing it for her life, <laughs> which I think is the best <laughs> thing ever. That but, is epic and very hard to do. That's Super hard. That is... You know, you talk about you know, fashion and retail being a tough game. Broadway, 
Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. There's a phrase, she's probably told you this, but there's a great phrase about Broadway. You can't make a living, but you can make a killing. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it takes, you know, three, four years for one musical to go all the way to Broadway through all the loops of community theatre. Like, it's not a full-time job. She's got five other jobs teaching and reviewing no. manuscripts. And, yeah, it's definitely a, a labour of love. Yeah. But she's brilliant. She's so talented. And yeah. I love that she's backed herself to do it. I love it. And you can the, the worst thing is those three or four years of development and getting investors on board and all that kind of stuff, taking it through the, you know, the bus and truck show and proving it. You can then get on Broadway finally and you can open and close in a month. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's over. Yeah. Or, yeah. or you just run. Because that's the thing. Yeah. They're either over in six weeks or okay, they for a decade. <laughs> go forever. I, I love to ask this question. Not a lot of people know the answer. Do you want to throw – this is before the movie came out. Do you want to throw out a number as to how much money Les Mis had made around the world before the movie came out? So, okay, so I'm guessing it's a big number because I think it was on the West End for like 20 years. So I'm going to say revenue, I don't know, $300 million. I'm going to Larry Emder on this one. Higher. <laughs> $700 million. Higher. Four billion pounds. Oh, we're going, well, you, you changed currency on I me. I know, you've got to do the conversion. <laughs> change currency on me. You're very close. Five billion dollars before oh, wow. the movie before the movie, five wow. billion is how much they made on that. So your sister's in the right game because it's a crapshoot. Yeah. Everything's a crapshoot. But with Broadway, yeah. if you get it right, far yeah. out. Anna, my sister, she's one of those people that just doesn't care about popular storylines and will only put forward what she believes in. So it's, it's cool because, like, it's a little niche, but it's really specific. Her most recent musical is inspired by the Greek myth of the goddess Dentata which is about a woman who has teeth in her vagina and anyone who's not her true love will have their penis snapped off by her vagina teeth. And it's an empowering story of feminism and the way she brings it to life is outstanding. <laughs> it probably adds a couple of years on that development cycle you know, for a mainstream audience to, to come to terms with it. I want to see the vagina teeth show. <laughs> Because I want to see how they do it on stage. <laughs> that will be the best. Adam, it's so good to talk to you today. Yeah, likewise. On behalf of my wife and teenage kid who's 16, uh, thank you for creating the iconic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to them for, for, for being customers. It's Holy shit. Not only did you found the end of bricks and mortar retail in Australia. <laughs> uh, sorry, I had to put on my current affair voice yeah. occasionally when I have to do those things. They always ask those preposterous questions. Um, not only did you found the iconic, you've also now put together something that is, you know, helping Australians, incredibly skilled Australians, find new purposes, new jobs through the other side of the COVID-19 lockdown situation. It's a thing called Hatch, which I do very much want to talk about, but I don't think there's anybody listening that hasn't once bought something from the Iconic. That is freaking colossal. You look about 10 years younger than me, which is freaking me right out. Uh, <laughs> Do you know, we, we met we met once. Um, Shit. Where? How a long really, ago? A really long, you wouldn't remember because it was a really long time ago. You're on Channel V and I would have been like 18 or 17 and I was led into this studio because I had a friend who knew someone and I'm guessing you would have been, I don't know, like mid-20s? What year was maybe? this? 
I'm going to guess like 2000, 2001. Oh, I was Channel like, B. yeah, 26, 27. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you became an instant hero for me. So I'm, <laughs> I'm like really, really excited that we're meeting again. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm glad we met in that situation. Cause that was, that was kind of right before it was around 28 when everything just kind of went off the rails and stratospheric at the same time in a kind of weird way. Were you still in high school at that point? Were you still in school? I finished high school 2000. So right. I'm 38 to answer your right, question. Right, right. So at what point did I'm going to create a massive online empire that will change <laughs> retail in Australia permanently show up? Or was that a thing that came to you in high school? Or was it like, what was it in high school? At that point in your life, what were you going to do? I was going to be a socialist or an astrophysicist. That was top of my agenda. Listen, um, I've read a few things from astrophysicists and you'd be surprised at how those two things intersect. I reckon. Because yeah. once you grasp the concept that you and I right now, there are atoms in our body that were once both at the same time part of Hitler, Prince, <laughs> And, um, fuck, I don't know, uh, someone amazing, Jesus, if he existed, Buddha, Krishna, the person that your grandfather was best mates with, that there are atoms inside us that were once part of all of those people. We really are one on an atomic level. We are are one. And once you start grasping that and you realize, well, why should one of us have more of a thing than the other? Boom. Then the socialism intersection happens. Sorry. Totally. It's very, (laughs) no, I agree. It's it's very leveling. I mean, the the other time I think that thought strikes me when thinking about the stars is a clear night and you're lying on your back in in the grass or the sand and you're looking at a blanket of stars and, and you just hit with that realization of you realize that you're just so small in the scheme of things and that I think it puts local competition or like capitalism in perspective where why are we spending so much energy competing? If you're an alien and you came down to earth, you'd be like, what are all these people running around and doing? Like they should be coordinating on climate change. They should be coordinating on like poverty. They should be coordinating on public health where they're spending so much time on these insignificant endeavors. And I, yeah, and I think that was like why I was interested in astrophysics. I started off, my first university degree was in physics and my plan was to go into astrophysics. And I just love those, like those big questions of existence. And that's probably yeah, why I was interested in being a socialist too. Well, there's a, you just described a, a thing that I'm most particularly fascinated with. It's a thing called the overview effect, which is something that happens to people who go into space and they have that exact realisation. I think the first, well, what was his name? Ed, Edgar Mitchell. I believe was the first mm. astronaut to describe it, where he was had the Hasselblad and he's sticking it out the window of the like Apollo Eight. I think it was they were heading out. The first people to ever do it because Apollo Eight was the one that didn't land. It was the one mm. that just tested the orbit that they could do it. And he looked back and he put his thumb through the viewfinder, put his thumb over the Earth. It was like, oh, that's it. And every single piece of history, everyone I've ever known, everything that I ever knew now doesn't exist. Oop, there it is again, just because yeah. we were just this little dot hanging in the black. The little and blue dot. Yeah, the pale blue dot, precisely. Yeah, mm. so, yeah, the overview effect is, is what you're describing. And, and you're positively right. When you go 100 miles up or whatever the low Earth orbit is, there's no borders. You can't see anything. Mm. It's just land and shared resource and one giant shared resource, the atmosphere, and like, well, there it is. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. There's really not much to it. So at what point did... This idea, um, clearly these things are in your heart. Clearly, you know, that sort of guides you a little bit. Where did the uh, where did the inception of moving towards this sort of, you know, creating something called the iconic, was there a prototype? Was there something that failed on the way? 
It was definitely an accident. It wasn't planned. And the broad brushstrokes of how I go from being interested in socialism and astrophysics when finishing high school to founding the Iconic was when, when I graduated, I, I spent time studying philosophy in my undergrad. I did an arts degree and a commerce degree. And the commerce was purely for a piece of paper and, and the arts was really what I, you know, what I loved was examining questions mostly through philosophy. So when I graduated, I just had this love of problem solving. And that naturally took me to consulting, strategy consulting, because it's just for people who don't know what they want to do with their life, it's a great place to be. Like you get to explore different types of problems and work with different types of people from a range of backgrounds. So I was doing that for a number number of years and had transferred to Copenhagen with the company I was working with and was was loving life uh, in Denmark, which is such a interesting culture. I was about to say exemplary, but they have some problems with racism. So I wouldn't say exemplary, but as a social system, they're really impressive. Pretty good. Um, the princess, uh, who is Australian, uh, often gets papped riding her kids to school in the cargo bike. And yeah. this is, you know, the wife of the reigning monarch. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> She rides her kids to school with a with a bicycle. Yeah, you know she doesn't get a helicopter there. She doesn't get an armored vehicle escort. And uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's a, yeah. but yeah, you're right. The racism is a is an issue in that in that country. It can be in that part of the world, but that's okay. It's a problem. All problems can be solved. It'll be all right. Tell me about your bicycle in Copenhagen. Oh, I had a an olive green Austrian bike that I definitely chose for retro cool reasons as opposed to functionality reasons because uh-huh. it just like the chain kept falling off yeah. and, the, and the brakes were like worn down. And But it just, I felt like it was the essence of Copenhagen. Even though it wasn't an Austrian bike, it really made me feel at home over there. Yeah. So was, many nights I had to put it in the back of a taxi on the way home though because oh. it just didn't get me all the way home. Oh, what a drag. But, um, but yeah, so the, you know, I was. I guess to continue the story, I was in Copenhagen doing consulting. I happened to meet through the work circles I was in some venture capitalists from Germany. This guy in particular called Oliver Samler, and Oliver Samler is really well known for taking Groupon out of Chicago and expanding it internationally. He describes himself as the most aggressive guy on the internet. I would describe him as a German Lord Voldemort but just not evil, just in terms of like he's a very, like a very intense kind of shouty kind of guy, but a super savvy investor. And so we, we were chatting and I think my time in Denmark showed me that e-commerce was light years ahead of Australia in Europe at the time. This is 2011. So I'd say five to seven years ahead of where Australia was. You know, in, in Australia in 2011, the rhetoric around e-commerce was either it doesn't exist, it's a fad, which, you know, people like Jerry Harvey or David Jones were saying, or we gave it a shot, but it didn't work out, which other retailers were saying, or it's just all too hard, so let's leave it to like bigger players like Amazon. And, you know, I was sort of talking to this investor, Alex Ammer, about this observation and that I thought that Australia was a market that didn't have a really strong online shopping proposition and Australians wanted it. They, you know, they were looking for online shops that were shopping with ASOS from the UK and, you know, a range of overseas retailers. And he said to me, yeah, Adam, yeah. I won't do the German accent. No, do it. It's hilarious. Go. (laughs) It turns into Indian when I try and do it after like five words. That's fine. Everything. I always turn Russian or Scottish, no matter who I try. Quite different accents. I know, right? (laughs) <laughs> he's like yeah i had him why don't you go back to australia yeah you can start the business it's my best that's my best uh, shot that's perfect i'll take it okay and i had no plans of starting a e-commerce company or retailer 
I said to him politely, look, I think that's a fantastic idea. I think the market's ready for it. But I've just moved to Copenhagen six months ago. I packed up my whole life, broke up with my girlfriend. Like I've committed to being in Europe. And he pestered me for about two months. And after two months, I started thinking, you know what, there's probably something in this. It is the right time in the market. He is someone who has the right experience and capital to get behind it because retail businesses are very expensive to build. And even if this isn't the right time in my life, it feels like the right opportunity. I'd always had the impetus to build things. You know, when I was at universities, I started a, a range of societies. I took a year off before I joined university and was, this is going to sound really cliche, but was like a kitchen knife salesman of like in-home demonstrations and was really successful at that and built like my own kind of little business around it. And so I had this desire to like learn new things and build things that just didn't really entertain at the time being a, an entrepreneur. And anyway, so eventually I thought to myself, you know what, in the, when's the next time this opportunity is going to come around? Let's disrupt my life. Let's go back to Australia, you know, say hi to all my friends and family again, who are going to be really surprised to see me and try and start an e-commerce business. You know, it's funny because it didn't, it didn't come from a long period of thought about retail and toiling in a garage as to how to, how to reinvent the model. And to be honest, like I didn't have much to do with retail before starting the Iconic. I was actually more interested in the aspect of identity when it came to fashion. Like how do we gain a sense of creativity and freedom in the way that we express ourselves more so than, you know, the mechanics of a retail model. But it just, you know, it was a moment in time. It was an opportunity. I thought, bugger it, I'm going to go for it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So you get back to Australia, like what's your first move? By the sounds of things, you'd be trying to speak to stakeholders in a, in a foreign language, like going, I'm going to build this thing. It involves no shop. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to sell clothes to people who can't try them on. People would think you're fucking mental. Yeah. The first thing, as with many new ventures, was putting the right team together. Yeah. And, you know, this certainly wasn't me by myself by any stretch. There was no. four of us as founders. The other three, they're all friends from the same company that I'd left. So we, we'd, we'd met there together and, and left together. And then we brought together a really talented initial group, you know, a handful of people who had experience in e-commerce and marketing, in buying fashion. Some of them were from Europe and we brought them back with us because they'd had experience in the European market. Some were Australian and they were coming out of traditional retail and were excited about the next wave of retail. So we put that group together and then we set about telling a story. And the story we told was, here's where Australia is going to be in five years. Either you want to play and you want to be part of that future picture, or you don't want to play and you're going to be left behind. 
we weren't telling that in a threatening way. We were just being honest. We were showing what was happening in the States. We were showing what was happening in Europe. And we were telling the story of the transformation of retail that was about to occur in Australia and the opportunity for primarily brands, because the goal was to get brands on board, you know, brands like Nike or Assassin Byte or Adidas, to tell the story of how they could be part of that future picture. And that's really what we set about doing. The rise to scale that the iconic had was is something that's truly exemplary in the last 10 years in Australia. Any Anybody that is anything would know and be aware of how rapidly you disrupted things. Before you started, what were the things that you were worried about that made you think, far out, maybe this isn't a good idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. The thing I would say to that question in general is that there isn't, in my view, a blueprint to the successful way you start a company. I think a lot. I think a lot of founders will look for startup methodology when they get going. You know, how do I create the right lean canvas, or how do I execute the right MVP? That's a minimum viable product. Sorry, jargon for anybody. No, it's fine. It's fine. Lean canvas is uh, basically a thing that comes out of the the Toyota company of all places, um, which is like how do you create the very minimum distance between creating a product, testing a product, getting it to market, and then reiterating when it needs to get improved. And what's the quickest, quickest, quickest you can do that, which is very easy in software, very difficult in you know hard things that you touch with your hands. And the other thing that Adam mentioned was um, MVP, which is the, the minimum, it's not Jordan, uh, it's the minimum, <laughs> the minimum viable product. What's the least amount of money we can spend on getting the first possible thing that does what we say it does that can allow us to see if people even want this thing? It won't be the one with all the bells and whistles. Like say, for example, we want a lawnmower. Does it have a grass catcher? We don't care right now. We just need it to cut grass. All right. So that's a, sorry, there we go. That's great. Continue. You teach, a, you teach a course on stuff. I went to business school. I asked you so much about the bicycles because <laughs> I went to business school in Amsterdam and I had to learn all this shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's cool. Yeah, so I get worried when I see first-time entrepreneurs trying to take a textbook approach to building a company by using some of these concepts. Mm. My belief is the right way to get started is purely by focusing on where am I going to deliver value to the end user And how can I do that really well? And it kind of comes from this framework I quite like called Jobs to be Done, which was established by Clayton Christensen. He was a professor in Harvard and a thought leader around how you bring new products to market. And he's got this framework called Jobs to be Done. And it's it's really simple. The, The way it goes is there are people walking around the world, walking around their daily life, trying to get things done. You know, a simple example is I'm trying to get to work. And brands help them do that job. So brand might be like, public transport, like in Sydney, it'd be Sydney buses and Sydney buses helps you get, or it might be like a taxi company and the taxi company helps you get there. It might be like your bicycle, an electric bicycle or my new bicycle. Um, I'm really into triathlons. I've got a super cool one right now that I can sometimes use to commute, even though I look like a bit of a wanker when I do it. And so all these, are you looking around for your bike in the background there? No, I'm looking around for a thing to show you. So I have these things. I got them on eBay. I'll send you the link. They're, um, (laughs) They're about as, as a Polaroid. They're about as big as this, right? And they've got the the cleat on the bottom. And so you go, and you clip them in, and boom. Now your tri-bike, you can wear regular shoes. That's amazing. That's it's amazing. 20 bucks on eBay. I really need that. So you talk about a value, what did you say? Not value proposition. You said get things done. That Jobs will help done, you. Yeah. That, that's a job to be done. I want to ride to, I bought this, you know, ridiculous carbon fiber bike that cost more than, you know, it should. But I need to get my bang for buck, so I want to ride it to work. I'm going to buy this $20 pair of pedals. There you go. It will save me buying a different bike. 
Yeah. Because yeah. there's always one more bike than you need and one less bike than you want. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the big problem. Anyway. Bikes are a money pit, I tell you what. Oh, the, um, the best kind. <laughs> best kind. So, yeah. So I, I guess so the, you know, the analogy here is you know, if you're trying to get to work and all these, all these brands – Buses, taxis, bikes are trying to help you do that job, which is the one that helps you do it best. Yeah. And so Jobs to Be Done says, if you're trying to bring something new to market, just figure out what job you're helping someone do and do it better than the other alternatives. And that's probably what Uber did really well in, in the analogy I'm giving here is that it wasn't that it was a problem for people. They were using taxis before. Uber just solved it way better. It just made it an easier experience. So why would why wouldn't you use it when it's an easier way to get that job done? Yeah. So for me, in answering your question is what was I worried about? I was worried about the things that were most critical to delivering value to the shoppers. And there were really two things that were that were very critical. One was that we had the right brands on site because it doesn't matter how savvy you are as a retailer, if you're not offering the right products and brands that people are looking for, then you're just not going to be relevant. And the second thing I was worried about was how can we deliver faster? Because I thought that delivery in Australia sucked. You know, it was two to four weeks at best. It was a shitty experience. And there was no way that online shopping was going to become the default way of shopping with, with that kind of a delivery yeah. timeframe. So, but was there any problems that you were so concerned about? You're like, I might not even want to start because of this thing that I'm afraid of. Um, I think there was the thinking around Amazon. Do we start get going for a couple of years and then Amazon just rolls into town and that's the end of that? Yeah. That changed our strategy. Our initial strategy was a what we called a general merchandise retailer offering a range of different categories that you might find on someone like eBay or Amazon. Yeah. And then we we eventually said, well, that's a pretty risky strategy given Amazon will want to come to town in Australia at some point. And so we decided to, fa- to focus down on fashion which is typically a category where the local players hold the greatest market share because it is a local topic. Now, I was once told by the bloke that brought KFC to Australia and Sizzler and Lone Star, knows a thing or two about franchises. I said, oh, so what's your number one? He says, the problems that you think are going to get in your way are never as big as you think they're going to be. The ones that stop you from starting are never as big as you think they're going to be. So just fucking start. Mm. You just may as well. And mm. yeah, so how did you find? Were the brands on board? Were the delivery times okay? Yeah, you know, it. Um, I think he's right in the sense that you can probably get started a lot faster than you expected. Yeah. And we just, you know, we, we heads down, bums up, we started getting into it. We were, we were pretty lucky with timing, I would say. It was the right time for a local player. Yeah. Australians wanted it. You know, they wanted a better online shopping experience and we went hard at it. I mean, definitely the, the problems we encountered were not the ones I expected. And we and we encountered some really big problems in the first year. Yeah. For us in the first year, we had to move warehouses four times within six months, you know, because we were growing faster than we expected. We had no, no real experience in warehousing. And so the first two warehouses were with a third party. Uh, that relationship went sour fast because... We wanted to keep changing and growing and optimizing, and they wanted to have a stable, predictable cost margin. So we quickly came to loggerheads. And then we said, well, let's do just do warehousing ourselves. So the second two warehouses were, the, were our own. We set them up our own. That's tough. That's not enough time for everyone to figure out where the toilets are. <laughs> yeah. we. I mean, after the second warehouse, we had everything on wheels. So we got really good at moving warehouse fast. 
The fourth one we moved into, we took over from a company that went bankrupt called Sleep City. You might remember them. They sold mattresses. We slept on many of those mattresses that they left in the warehouse. It was an interesting time. It was a combination of being euphoric, you know, this sense of this is working, it's going gangbusters, we all have to put our blood, sweat and tears in it to support the growth. On the other hand, it was incredibly unhealthy from a work-life balance. You know, at, at the end of those six months, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was in a real hole, like in terms of burnout, completely disengaged from all the relationships in my life that I cared about, my friends and my family. I just never, I never really reached out to. If I, if I was at a birthday party, I was kind of not really there. I was glazed over. I was thinking about work or I was just like on such low energy levels. I was on autopilot. I stopped paying attention to like my own needs, whether that be you know, health and exercise or whether it be just the interests that I have outside of work, like everything, it was all consuming. Like everything just became about the rocket ship and supporting it. Yeah. And it's funny because in hindsight, I'm not sure that there would have been a different way that we could have gone about it and the Iconic would have survived. Yeah. Like there were a number of points within those six months that if we didn't pull all-nighters, we wouldn't have made that warehouse move or we wouldn't have overcome that tech issue and we just wouldn't be around anymore. You know, that when you buy a lot of stock, you got to sell it. And if you don't sell it, you go bankrupt. But at the same time, I don't believe that that was a sustainable um, or healthy way to run a team. So it's a bit of a juxtaposition that, um, you know, I now try and avoid by thinking primarily about how do you have a healthy or a sustainable environment before how do you go gangbusters? So that was a steep learning curve for me. When you were in that you know, that first year, first two years after launch, you're Wallace and Gromit, you're, way, you're laying the railway track as you go. You know, you're building the road as you drive along it. So who are you looking to for guidance? Who are you looking to for, you know, who's the North Star? Who's the one saying, hey, champ, time for you to actually go home, stop crashing on the floor here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that was part of the issue is that, our investors were all in Europe and America. Yeah. And they're investors of a broad portfolio of companies. So they had a bunch to worry about beyond us. And Australia was pretty far for them, different mm. time zone, far flung continent. So there was no one local that we had a tight relationship with that was playing a board or a you know a chairperson role. We like we were really in control of our own destiny in that regard. Now the upside was what phenomenal autonomy and freedom to be able to build a business the way that you believe it should be built. Yeah. The downside was the only person in my life that would sometimes pull me up and say, Hey, like maybe you should take a break was my dad. And outside of that, and, and actually he played a fantastic and still does play a fantastic role to me as a mentor in that capacity. But, you know, we didn't have the governance structure around it otherwise. Right. And did you over time see that maybe and I speak from my own, my own experience is that there was a point where I realized that my own best ideas, the best that I could do, the best thinking I could come up with probably didn't put me in a great place. And it was time that I listened to other people and follow their direction. Was there someone that came along that you, you started to see a need for a bit of guidance outside of your dad, who I'm sure is a great fella. Is there someone like in kind of business that you started looking towards and started chasing down as far as a guidance, even though you've just created this gigantic monolith of brands that's making, you know, Myers and David Jones, you know, pee in their trousers? Yeah, there were both <laughs> pee in their trousers. I think there I think there were fashionable both, like- trousers. Fashionable. <laughs> 
I think there were both internally and externally to the company. Like in, internally, you know, again, this this was not by any regards me doing this job by myself. We started building a management team of really talented people from a variety of backgrounds. Yeah. And so they brought with them a lot of those questions and a lot of that thinking of, you know, how do we build a sustainable and a healthy and a diverse workforce? And, you know, how do we hold ourselves accountable to uh, the long term, not just the short term when it comes to trade? And, you know, how do we think about the sustainable um, supply chain of fashion and, and a role we play when it comes to the factories that we buy from. And, you know, there was just so much talent. I mean, that's one really lovely thing about running an organization like the Iconic is that even though I'm not there anymore operationally, I know it's still true. Because it combines several different business models, a technology model with a fashion model, with a logistics and supply chain model, you get real diversity of thought. You get people from a sincerely different background, like someone who's been working in pharmaceutical supply chains for 20 years thinks really different to someone who's been running a retail chain in North America, and and they bring really different experiences. So from the get-go, we were naturally a very diverse organization in thought and background and nationality and gender and creed. And I think that added a lot to avoiding group thinking and, and having critical discussions around the things that mattered. And then externally, after a couple of years, we changed the governance structure and one of our Swedish investors took the majority investor seats and played much more of a role around governance and still do to this day. And they're very long-term patient thinkers. They're very supportive. And they brought with them some people down here in Australia, particularly we brought in a CEO, a guy called Patrick Schmidt, who I worked with really closely, um, who also brought in a lot of a lot of those, I guess, levels of thinking. So yeah, so it came from a variety of places over time, for sure. What's interesting about your story, look, we have this opportunity right now. There was the, okay, we'll rebuild it just as it was, all right? And then a couple of weeks more go by where it's like, okay, we can't, that's not going to happen. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get a way to rebuild it and we'll try to make it kind of the same. And then 10, 12 weeks go by, it's like, okay, so we're really going to have to rebuild everything. What can we do now versus are we going to try and claw back to what we did or are we going to try and build something better or now all the Lego bricks are smashed, can we build a different model that Mm -hmm. kind of looks cooler and operates better for everyone? Because that Mm -hmm. old model was cool, but we have this opportunity now. And this brings us to the conversation around this new venture, Hatch, which is very much about taking skilled workers from industries that are either shut for a little while or won't be back open for quite some time and trying to place them in places where, where they have as you mentioned before, you know, a real a sense of satisfaction about mm. being at that job. I mean, we all love food on the table as much as the next guy and a gig's a gig, but, you know, it's like any job. I'm sure Hugh Jackman wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, fuck, long day today. I get to go out and run around and be Wolverine slash Peter Allen all at the same time, but still it's work for him. You know, yeah. you're going to have to want to love it. All right. Yeah. So when you think about how we can rebuild and what we might be able to, what, What's the possibility we're looking at here, Adam? What what are we looking at? The first thing that comes to mind, based on what you just said, is I think that we are in a moment of real opportunity when we think about the economy and, and the workforce and just the system of work at large. And the way I see it is that the status quo and rules are there to be challenged. It's not necessarily the best way to do things, simply because a industry works a certain way, simply because a career works a certain way, doesn't mean that it's the way it should work. It just means that that's how it's been done. We often think that 
rules were put in place by someone or a group of people who are smarter or who have more authority or who are better positioned than us to decide those rules. And my experience from founding the Iconic tells me concretely that rules are not put in place by people who are necessarily smarter than you. They were just from another time and they're there to be challenged. I think when we think about work, the system of work is an overhang from the industrial system and it hasn't changed much in a long time. And you know, if we, if we paint the broad arc of work over the past 500 years and at a very high level, starts with a feudal system where we have zero choice over what we do. You know, we're born into a family that either that family determines our work or um, we're a woman and we can't even work at all. Yeah. We move to the industrial age, the 1900s, where, okay, like maybe there's a little bit more choice of what you can do if you're from a lucky social background, but on the whole, you're going to play a very narrow role within a supply chain within one industry. And then we come to the digital era, which is, you know, what we are now moving into. And all of a sudden, choices exploded, but mobility hasn't caught up with it. You know, I, I think that one of the real shortcomings of the system of work is that by and large, it's still really hard to figure out what's right for us. And we get born into a set of opportunities more than anything else. You know, like social background governs what opportunities are in front of us when it comes to work. And the way that that plays out in someone's career is this idea that you learn a set of skills when you're young and then you do that thing for the next 30 or 40 years. You know, whether you learn those skills at TAFE or at university or from your dad who taught them to you or from your mom or whoever it was, you got this bag of tricks and then you do it for the next 30 or 40 years. I don't think that suits us. You know, careers are like relationships. They're not static, like no primary relationship in our life, whether it be a marriage, whether it be with religion, whether it be with sexuality, none of it's static. We're, we're always learning and evolving. And the same is true for work. You know, the work that we start with when we're in our mid-20s might not be the same when we're in our mid-30s, but the system of work has a lot of barriers that prevent us from changing. You know, whether it be because it's hard to learn new skills, whether it be because it's hard to start from scratch, whether it be because we don't have the networks or the social markets that give us a look-in or a foot in the door somewhere, it's really hard to reinvent yourself. And I think if there's something that's going to come out of the COVID era, the thing I'd put my money on is that there will be a lot more permission and need for everybody to reinvent themselves. There's going to be this trend towards lifelong learning or to adaptiveness. Fundamentally, my belief is that as humans, we are very adaptive and we have the capacity to learn new things much more than we know. But the construct of a career hasn't supported that type of a learning journey. I think that time is gone. You know, I think the time where a set of skills last 30 years and in fact, in the early 1980s on average, the half-life of a professional skill was about 30 years. Today, the half-life of a professional skill is about five years. And so what we now need to do is continue to learn new ones, and that provides the opportunity to reinvent ourselves into new pathways and explore new pathways that actually might be a better fit for who we are. That's my hope coming out of this. And I guess from what you mentioned earlier, the great example you talked about when you get someone who's used to pharmaceutical logistics and get them into 
retail logistics. Now, just for example, pharmaceutical logistics is extraordinarily precise. You're talking about, I had my flu shot today, right? So you're talking about that flu shot has been kept at a constant temperature from where it got manufactured, probably somewhere in Europe, all right? It has never been out of refrigeration as it's gone from factory floor to truck to shipping container to truck to railway car to whatever, to whatever, to small delivery van to fridge to the lady. She was a mobile flu vax lady and, you know, to her esky to me today sitting there getting more, like, and if it goes outside of a particular temperature range, don't use it. It's over. It becomes unfunctional. So when you get someone who's used to that kind of precision delivery and get them into, you know, a delivery company, they're like, the fuck is this sitting around for 10 hours? You can't have that. And you go, oh, yeah, right. We just saved 10 hours on getting something to somebody else, you know, and then instantly you've got this advantage. So similarly, what you're talking about is people who, as they go through life, you know, it's not like they forget everything I learned so they can start their new job. They bring all those things with them to the new job. And there, in that synchronicity of those things, those pinballs, those marbles bashing into each other inside the jar, that's when the exciting things start to happen and where the new employer of this newly skilled person may seem get benefit that they otherwise didn't expect. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, what, what you said about the value of someone's past experiences in a different context still being relevant to a new context they move into, I think is is absolutely true. And I've seen that play out time and time again in, in my role leading organizations. I can think about one example where we, we had a guy at the Iconic he came from a background in finance. He was working in our team in a area called marketplace, which is kind of like how eBay operates. There's some stuff that the Iconic sells where um, it's not coming from the Iconics warehouse. It comes directly from, you know, the brand or the designer. Yeah. And he was doing an okay job in that area. It didn't, you know, like he learned a lot from it about how to run a business model with two sides, a buyer and a seller, because it was sort of like a microcosm of that within our business. And then we moved him into analytics. And he just became the highest performer. It was exceptional to see how he took what he learned from being on the front line of working with buyers and sellers and then used that in the way he understood problem solving in an analytics context, not just on paper, but like really thinking through, well, what's going on for the buyer behind this problem? What's going on for the seller? And how do I use that context to set up the problem right and analyze it right? You know, and, and I've seen so many examples like that where we where I've moved people into new functions, and the talent and the experiences they've had from totally different worlds are relevant to where they've moved to. As you said, it's what we've been doing recently at Hatch, where you know you've got over a million Australians out of work. We've had over ten thousand of them sign up to the website to be redeployed into new types of work. So they've been stood down, their employers signed up. We've had about 400 employers sign up saying, hey, we've got stood down workers. Over 10,000 of them have then joined. And there's a version pilot called Josh that we put into a government contact center team supporting people with COVID-19 queries. We, we put a really wonderful person from Flight Center called Jess into an e-commerce company, Pet Circle working with pet circle customers, like totally different fields. But, you know, for Josh, the pilot, you know, in being a pilot at Virgin, he's learned customer service, he's learned compassion, he's learned being cool under pressure, he's learned how to run an operation, he's run, he's learned how to run a team, like a flight crew. And all of that is like super relevant to this other operation, this government operation he, he was redeployed into. So for sure, like I think you're spot on. I think the trick is how do you quantify and communicate that value to a employer who's hiring, right? Because 
what happens right now is when someone's hiring, they're looking primarily at status markers of someone's CV. You know, what was their education background? What was their last job? Was it a was it a pedigree company? Was it an impressive job title? Has someone recommended them that I know? And I I can tell you from experience that none of that is particularly predictive to whether that's the right person for the job. You can't tell if someone's the right person for a job off their CV. Like you have to understand more about who they are as a human. Like what are their strengths? What motivates them? What are their preferences around behavioral styles and environments? What do they value and how's that going to drive them in their job? These are the things you need to understand. But we don't have a good way right now of like quantifying and communicating and measuring and talking about them. So I think that's one of the big opportunities thinking forward is that we recognize that. We recognize that as humans, you know, we are not as simple as our job titles. We're actually more complex and have higher potential than that. And that we provide opportunities for people not to start from scratch again, but to build on their existing experience in a new industry, in a new job that allows them to put all that experience to work in a transferable way. When you look at rebuilding the Australian economy in a, in a post-COVID or co-COVID, because we're going to be living with it for a while, we are going to have to figure out how to live in the way that you know we can minimise the damage on those in our community who are at risk, which is all of us, some more than others. It seems that, you know, and for obvious reasons, it's really easy for a governmental player, the state or the federal government to push into infrastructure jobs and green light what they like to call shovel ready projects, Mm. because that seems to make sense. Let's go build stuff. But that's not everybody. All right. Mm. What's the let's go build stuff? Where's the opportunity? Where's the possibility for redeploying this workforce into what part of the economy can we expect to see growth in, do you think? Or what would you like to see happen? What would you like to see resources poured into developing and and supporting people as they start to create perhaps an an entirely new industry? I don't know. Mm. I think there's two ways to answer that. You know, the, the first is to think about what do we want Australia to look like as an economy in the future? What do we want to lead in? When you break down the Australian economy, there's a couple of pillars that we stand on. One is the resource sector. Now, I'm, I share your view around climate change and the move towards renewable energies, and I am terrified about our attachment and addiction to our resource sector. I think it's an addiction we need to break. And I think until we do, we will be held to the past, you know, as opposed to thinking forward to the future. I think a second pillar that we stand on is the information economy. We are really good knowledge workers in Australia. We're great at innovation. We're great at research. um, We're great at professional services. Broadly speaking, like we really punch above our weight when it comes to invention and knowledge and information. A third area that I think that we stand on is that we're also quite service oriented. I think that we do think deeply about how to um, support each other and deliver good services. I think that particularly comes through the care work sector. And I think Australians also punch above their weight in that regard. Thinking forward, like I would love to see us excel on the technology stage. I think I'm not just saying that because I'm coming from a technology set of businesses, but I think that that's where we know the world is moving. You know, COVID has materially accelerated the shift towards digital business models and more global business model. I think that Australia already has a lot of talent when it comes to the knowledge space, and we have the opportunity to lead in that regard. 
I would also like to think that we have, you know, combining the second and the third pillar, we have the opportunity to lead not blindly as in, you know, my criticism of Silicon Valley would be let's just build whatever makes us money or whatever like gets used the most amount of times by millions of people, but to build critically, to think about what does the world need? What does Australia need? How do we serve people and how do we serve communities? And how do we use our chops around technology and around inventing business models and around innovation? How do we use that to better serve the communities that are important to us? I think what that shakes out as in terms of where is there going to be growth opportunity comes to the second way to look at this, which we, we could take a bottoms up look of, well, where are the in-demand capabilities right now and in the future? And they are in those two clusters. You know, the first cluster I would describe as the digital value chain. Over the past month, I've talked about 40 to 50 major Australian employers to understand what's going on for them in the next one to two years around their workforce. You know, from the context of Hatch, I've been thinking about um, what will their world look like and how can we best support them? And the number one thing I hear is we need a lot more digital capabilities. You know, wh whether that be software engineers, whether it be digital marketers, whether it be contact center and customer support operators, um, because, you know, people aren't going to tell us in a retail branch of a bank, but they're now calling in or they're, they're on online chat. Whether that be supply chain and logistics, there's a lot more retail, and now a lot more retail moves online. Whether that be in the sustainability space or even ethics and thinking about how do we incentivize healthy behaviors around the use of technology, which is just, you know, ballooning right now. All of that is in the digital value chain. And I think there will be a lot of demand for skills and capabilities in that area. And I particularly think there's a lot of opportunity to transfer experiences from other areas into there. I think the second ballooning cluster of jobs is care work, the care sector, disability care, aged care, in-home care. Uh, there is a shortage right now in Australia for those skills. And I think there's an opportunity to transfer and transition a lot of people from different backgrounds into that sector. Yeah, that's that's how I currently see it. I guess the other thing that I would ask you is as far as the third part of my question, I guess, which was creating an industry that doesn't exist yet, solving a problem that people didn't realize they had, which is something that you've done quite successfully with something called the Iconic. I guess one of the things that sticks out to me about your story is that just through the course of your career, you had access to not only knowledge, but also capital from Europe and America. But not everyone in Australia may have that connection, may have that. You were, by the sounds of things, uh, you were you were skirting around it pretty well. You were working for a pretty big kind of corporate consultingly <laughs> management firm. I don't know if it was the firm, but it was a firm. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been an acronym, I don't know. But one of those places where you're basically, you're rubbing shoulders and taking meetings with these kind of people all the time and you meet them through course of water and, they, and you, call, you, you get to call them up and say, hey, I'm starting this thing. I know you're interested. You do this kind of stuff. Would you be interested? You know, what would you say as far as how Australia is set for people who were you 10 years ago going, all right, I've got this great idea, but there's no investors in Australia that can see what my vision is. What would you say to somebody like that as far as how they might access capital to help them get off the ground? Yeah, I think the world does look a lot different today versus 10 years ago. I think I was in a super fortunate position a decade ago to meet people who had access to capital. And that's my luck. That's my privilege. Man, the window opened and you dive through it like Trinity in the first scene of The Matrix. And fuck, who wouldn't? <laughs> you you yeah. saw the emote. Like, I'm not saying it was a bad thing yeah. that you did it. You're absolutely right to have done it. Uh, yeah, and it's it, a great it, move. 
Yeah, you're definitely going to take advantage <laughs> of the opportunity. Yeah. I, I do I do think that though the playing field not being level is a problem, and I'll come back to that in a sec. But today, 10 years on, the world does look a little bit different, and there's probably two big differences in Australia. One is that you don't need as much capital today as you did 10 years ago, and that's because the way you build something new in the past required you to build a lot of stuff from scratch. Today, you can lean on a lot of existing services. I don't know. In the past, you had to invest into a data center. Now you can just use Amazon Web Services. It's like cheap and cheerful. In the past, maybe you had to write your own code from scratch. Today, you can take a template website for you know 50 bucks and run with it. In the past, as a retailer, by and large, you did have to buy your own stock. Today, there's a lot more marketplace models where you can simply connect the dots between where stock is and, and the buyers and so forth. So I think actually there's a lot more mobility around starting something today than there was 10 years ago that makes it a bit easier to get started. The second thing is that Australian investors back then were super conservative. I mean, we really wanted local investors and we didn't get a single one. You know, all of them were saying, we just don't see the investment thesis for e-commerce. How's it ever going to be profitable? We think it's too risky. And like, you know, I was pulling my hair out. Like, look at America. Like, look at Europe. Do you really think Australia's got a different set of dynamics and we're a special case? Like, we're not. Like, that's the future. But the Australian investment community is a conservative community. Ten years later, you know, they've caught up and it's less risky to be investing there's a lot more venture capitalists locally that are fantastic. There's a lot more funds. There's a, there's more of an ecosystem to get going. So my advice to someone thinking about it today would be like, fantastic, just try something out in the smallest way you can. If you've got an idea, put it in front of 50 people, see if they'll use it, go from there. Trying something in reality is absolutely the best way. There's this really awesome quote I love, which is, if you have a really great idea and you're wondering if you should do something about it, Go and tell the idea to 10 people who love you and want you to succeed and check in a week later to see what they've done. And a week later, if those 10 people have gone and told 10 more people, so now like 100 people know, then you're onto something. Invest into building, as we said earlier, an MVP and starting the market and see what happens. If those 10 people haven't told like more than maybe two or three each, and they're the people who love you and want you to succeed, like just drop it right then and there. Like stop, like you're not onto something. Time to move on to the next thing. That's my best advice to someone getting started. Mate, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I think, you know, the other thing that you've got to remember about that is it's not a failure that you've done that. You literally are one step closer to finding the thing that hits. As I always love to say, they didn't stop at WD38. <laughs> they didn't stop at WD39 because that was the test numbers. Water displacement one, water displacement two. Water displacement number 40, WD40, that's the one that worked. That's what they went with. Boom. I love that. I <laughs> they, didn't know that. But they did it. You know, that's the number. That's what it was. It was just the number that they kept going. And that was only 40 goes. There's people, yeah. you know, what was it? Darren Hayes from Savage Garden. I think he sent out like 120 demo tapes. One person wrote back. Two US number one singles, I think, at least two or three US number one singles. Like every time you failed, you're one, that's one no closer to a yes. And it's super important to understand that, uh, that just have trust that you've got the idea that you're there. Um, you mentioned earlier that you did 
burn the candle at every end that existed. But, and I ask this because, you know, people might now be at the moment working themselves silly and worrying themselves silly, trying to think about how they're going to change and grow and adapt and move out of this situation into the next possibility, which we are moving into very rapidly as a, as a community. What mm. were some signals for you that I might have to have a look at what I'm doing here? When did things, was there some moments that you could recognize that started to unravel that people might be able to find in themselves? Yeah, I, I definitely caught myself in a couple of moments that were uncharacteristic and were flags to me. You know, the, the first one that springs to mind is a really simple moment and it sounds inconsequential, but I think it's sometimes those little ones that can actually count. I was walking home on a summer's day uh, towards the end of our first year of hypergrowth. And uh, where I lived at the time, there was a path to get to the front door and the path had a bunch of trees and bushes on both sides with really beautiful summer flowers. And it was just that time of day I don't know how to describe it. It's late afternoon, it's getting towards sunset and, and the sun's really low and you get this golden glow sweeping across. In my business, it's called Magic Hour because that's when everyone's skin looks beautiful. Exactly. Magic Hour. I didn't know that Magic Hour. So it was Magic Hour and the sun was just peeking through these summer flowers and they smelled beautiful. And off in the distance through the, the flowers, you could just grasp the ocean and you know, the glistening deep blue at that time of day. And I just like didn't clock any of it. I was in my head straight to the front door. And then I stopped and I kind of looked and I turned and I looked back around. I was like, that's really not like me. Like I would normally at least notice this really beautiful scene that I've just walked past and the smell and the sight of it. And it's not even that I didn't clock it because maybe I could have been in my in my own head. It's that it meant nothing to me. You know, like it was there, like I knew it was there, but it meant nothing to me. I was all like, ah, no time for that. I don't know how to explain it. I can't feel it. It felt empty. It felt meaningless. And that's when I knew that I was like deep in a hole, you know, because I was just trapped in this busy world of all the shit that was happening to sustain that growth and wasn't able to connect it and relate to the world around me anymore. So that, yeah, that was, I think that was the first moment that I noticed, hang on, this could be not healthy. The second moment was not long after where I was, it was Saturday night. I was at a pub, I think in Balmain for a friend's birthday drinks, really, really close friend, treasured friend. And he was talking to me about something and it was like 10 minutes. And I can't even tell you like what he said for those 10 minutes. I was just, spaced out, you know, not spaced down in the sense like I was I was on any substances. Uh, that's not me. But I was just, again, not able to relate to the external world around me. Not that I was distracted. I just couldn't relate to it. And I think the combination of those two experiences made me realize that it was, a, it was an unhealthy spot that I was in. Clearly, those two wouldn't have been the only moments. That would have had an effect on the way you could do your job. That would have had an effect upon your work. That would have had an effect on your relationship with your management team and ultimately the entire business. What was your pathway out of that? How did your pathway look? It was actually pretty simple and it was suggested by my dad. I think he must have noticed and made a gentle suggestion. And it was just about exercise. you know. And he said, look, what are you making time for in your week as a priority? And, I, and everything I answered with were work things. And he was like, no, 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 no. Like for you, not for work. And there was nothing. And he was all like, the way you build your week is you start with the things that are important to you that you want to hold sacred and you want to lock in and make time for. And then let work fill the other stuff. But if you don't 
start with those things that are sacred, work will fill everything. Like particularly when when you're you know trying to build a business, there is no end. It's not like you have a defined to do list, right? Like you you can just keep on going as long as you want because there's there's no done effectively. And so I took that advice. And I started doing this morning boot camp and I wasn't really a morning person. So that was like pretty abrasive, you know, as it was. And within about three weeks, it started having an effect on me. Like I started coming up for air, you know, like I started feeling myself again and listening to the outside world and feeling like clear headed and feeling like I was more in control and I had balance. And it was such a simple thing to do, but it had like a really profound effect. And now, today, where does exercise come into your, your work schedule? So last, a year before late last year, a close friend of mine bet that we couldn't do a half Ironman in November last year. And so I'm like a really competitive person for better or for worse, often for worse. And I was like, right, we're going to do this. And he's like, you know, I'm going to be, he's like three years younger than me. So he's like, I'm going to beat you. And I, I took that as a real affront. I'm like, okay, if that's what you think, I'm going to show you who's boss here. And it was great because it, it forced us to really get into triathlons. And we, you know, like made a lot of time for it in the mornings. And that was really healthy for me. Since then, and, and through COVID, like that part of my day's fallen away. And I think I'm probably back in the space where I need to find regular routine exercise. I think that particularly for us over the last three months, from a Hatch perspective, you know, we, we've been executing this initiative that we've been calling the Hatch Exchange to redeploy displaced workers. And it's been really intense. You know, a lot of people I talk to about COVID say their experience is either one way or the other. Either it's been way crazier than normal in terms of their work and they've lost all balance or they've, they're out of a job. And they've, they've been struggling and they're trying to figure out what to do with themselves. And, you know, they're really extreme experiences. I've been on the extreme of work's got crazy. We've tried to execute this initiative to help redeploy people. It's been going really well, but it's put a lot of pressure and burden on myself and the team. And so, yeah, it's funny you ask the question because I've recently been thinking about those lessons learned early in the Iconic and, and how I'm at risk of pointing myself towards that path again and how I need to break some of those habits before they form. I'm sure you've got an executive assistant. Just get that person to put the workout in the calendar and defend it at all costs. I do not. I do not. You know, like what? startups. Startups. It's uh, you know. get yourself a Wahoo, and we'll jump on Zwift, and you can be accountable to me, and um, I'll do group rides with you. <laughs> all, right. all right. Yeah, you can be my accountability partner. because that's that, that's a really important factor in this kind of shit. Is like having somebody that you make a promise to. It's like going surfing, and like if you go, so I'm going to go. I feel like I go surfing tomorrow. Oh, it's cold. I'll stay in bed. If you go, oh, but I told Steve I'd meet him, oh. yeah. and then and then when you get out there, it's like, oh, thank God I did. Yeah, you know that was and that was uh, you know the triathlon thing for me. Doing it with a friend was such a great point of accountability. You just you can't back down. Can't back down. I know you're interviewing me, but I'd love to ask you a question on this point. Because I know that you're someone that's always built your career on really hard work. Yeah. For me, I resonate with that because I've always worked my ass off for you know for what I'm trying to achieve. But it's come with you know sacrifices and compromises, and often my own personal health has been one of them. You know, I'm curious what if any sacrifices or compromises you've had to make? I've had to give up the idea that I know what is the right thing to do. And I've had to, it's really, really hard to let go of this thing that has got me where I am. But there was a point last year where I get cold sores. Cold sores are the, the your body's last chance 
the barricade coming down on the, you know, the road. They're the signs you start smashing through before you get the bridge being out, right? When you feel them coming on, you can take a drug called famcyclovir. It feels like someone's punching you in the kidneys, but the cold sore doesn't erupt so nastily. And I can't go to work with a cold sore. Mm. I can't have a pet cornflake on my face when I'm telling men and women that they have to go home from a mansion, right? <laughs> there was a point last year... Oh, and there's one I was doing Brecky Radio, actually. I took it three times in five weeks. And um, Audrey's not listening to the podcast too much at the moment because she's busy with Wolfie. I told Audrey about one of those times. So I secretly took it twice because I didn't want her to know that my body was falling to pieces. Mm. I just had to fucking listen to her and go... I don't know when it is time to stop. I'm like a Labrador with an open bag of dog food. I will keep eating until I die. I don't know when I have to stop. So I think it's thanking this drive that has got me where I am. I appreciate that you're there. I'm, I'm grateful for you. But right now, I just can't do that because it's unsustainable. Certainly as I get older and my body starts to fail, I just have to stop and it's uncomfortable to not move. It's uncomfortable to stop. It's uncomfortable to not do stuff all the time, but I have to. I absolutely have to. And it's much to Audrey's chagrin. She's, it's a constant battle for her to just go, you're not shooting. Why the fuck is your calendar full? You know, <laughs> I have to, you know, and it's really important. It's really important. Oh yeah. Sorry. I'm just, I have to snap myself out of it uh, a lot. I guess it's a lot easier for me because I'm sober, so I don't go out. I don't socialize around pubs and clubs and things like that. I don't do that. It's easy because I have, you know, I have a 16-year-old and we have a 10-month-old. So home and family is, there's no nightclub that's as good as hanging out with a baby. It's mm. the best thing mm. ever. And there's no, being there for a teenage girl is the greatest honor and privilege. And, you know, that's, that's supreme. What I would say is that when I don't make time, I guess I've got a bit of a, another another signal I've got is that, unfortunately, I was born with a thing called femoral acetabular impingement, which is a, uh, if the head of your hip is a light globe, right, that socks into the, into the ball and socket, right? It's got like a P-shaped bone spur on it on both sides. And then when my knee comes up, it smashes into the labrum and um, has been degenerating my hips over years and years and years and years and years, marathons and everything. So I can't run anymore. And now I need bilateral hip replacement. If I don't train, if I don't work out, it becomes agony to sit. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do what I'm doing right now. So I fucking have to. All right. Mm. I have to. Otherwise, like I'm going to get the surgery, but I need to have three months from doing nothing, which has been tricky this year because schedules are all out of whack. So I'm going to have to hold off on the surgery for another, you know, while. But that is kind of good because it means I have to train because when I train, that gives me the serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine and the, you know, endorphins that I need in order to change mood states, to think clearly, to make clear decisions, to get a handle on myself when I get reactive. <clears throat> if I don't train, I can get reactive and then just start and then not realize it for another half hour and then make all these decisions and write emails and do shit. And then I'm like, what if I just, what the fuck? Uh, you know, <laughs> and that's not great. 
And then also it affects my relationship with my wife, with my kids and with my work. So prioritizing sleep and prioritizing just an, an hour a day. And right now it's actually pretty good because Wolf normally sleeps anywhere between 9 and 9.30 for about an hour. Mm. I've got to get it done. That's when I do it. And mm. then you've mm-hmm. only got that amount of time. But I know that if I don't do it, I'm in trouble. And I just treat it the way I say to people that I'm, when I mentor people, I'm like, all right, so if you want to do this kind of job that I'm in, treat yourself. You're not only the CEO of, let's say I'm talking to someone called Bethany. All right, Bethany, you are the CEO of Bethany Enterprises, but you are also the product. Okay. So you've got to constantly care for that product, create the product design, iterate, make sure it's sustainable make sure that you can keep the supply chain running, make sure you can keep delivering when the people who pay you pay Bethany Enterprises for Bethany, get their money's worth, all right? That's Mm -hmm. a part of the gig. Mm -hmm. So similarly, I would say to you, as someone who's at that level in Hatch, all right, your body is an asset of that company. (laughs) And much like the computer you're speaking to me on now, if it has a problem, you'll send it to the IT guy. You'll get make sure your lift is fixed. You'll make sure the AC is working in the building so that people can work. Like if the AC wasn't working, you'd be like, everyone's to stay home. It's too cold to come to work today or it's too hot to come to work today. Like it's a fundamental capital expenditure that you absolutely have to build in to your life and your day. The chassis that you operate in is now a fundamental part and a a critical point on your Gantt chart that you can't fuck with and you have to take it that seriously because as you get older, if you don't prioritize it, look, man, the story is as old as the hills of the amount of executives that have their hearts fall out and they're on statins and they've had four surgeries and they still eat shit. You know, it's awful when you see these guys. And I've known guys, I mean, because I'm of that age. I know guys, guys my age have had, they've got three stents inside them, you know, and yeah. they still take the drugs. I'm like, what are you fucking doing, man? Like, yeah. you've got kids, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Surely, I know you like to fly up the front of the plane, but is it, come on, what? Is it worth it? You know, yeah. So, it's easy to get lost in sorry, mind. sorry to give you the lecture, mate. But no, it's good. It's good. If you look at it like that, it changes how you prioritize your fitness. Because without yeah. you, where is, you know, your virgin f- pilot who comes to you looking for a job? Where is your flight center lady? You're a critical part of this business, and your investors, as you know as well as I do, people invest in the idea and the person who can execute the idea in equal amounts. All right, because my idea is worth nothing. I'm not you. You can execute. I can't. People are going to give you money before we might have the same idea, but they're going to give you money before they give me money. All right. So your sustainability, your viability, is vital. Yeah. And you have to take it that seriously. It's good. You definitely should be my accountability coach. I'm sure I really enjoy it. I'm here. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think something that's really interesting what you talked about there in the way I think about building organisations is this idea that. You need to build a culture where people can bring their whole self to work, where the whole self thinks about their mental health, their physical health, their anxieties, their desires, their hopes, their dreams, their totally unwork-related interests and curiosities. And I think what's happened for a long time, you know, I I hope that COVID's going to bring an existential moment when we think about why we work. But I think what's happened for a long time is we've had to have a shield up at work. You've basically got two jobs. One job is to do the job you paid for. 
And the other job is to manage the perception of you doing it to others. You know, it's political positioning. And so much energy is expended on that second job. And I think it's unhealthy and I think it's unrequired. You know, so something we're doing at Hatch is we try and build a culture where you don't need that second self. You don't need the shield to manage the perceptions. But if you're feeling like you just need to stay home one day, you can. If you need to have a nap in the middle of the day, you can. If you're feeling like really shitty about something, you can just say, you know, and like building a culture of, I guess, psychological safety where people can be their, their whole self. And that really underpins like where we'd love work to go post-COVID, where instead of thinking about our careers in status terms, how do I consume more status and pride and reputation and wealth? We think about careers in terms of contribution terms. Who am I? What are my strengths? And how do I want to contribute? And rather than always being on the the mouse wheel of I'm trying to catch the next piece of status because that's going to let me fit in and belong, that we can instead lean into doing the things we really love and thinking first about how we contribute to the communities we care about. And we can have a very fluid career that allows us to pursue those goals no matter where they take us. That's something that we deeply believe in. And I I personally feel that that that's a very interesting take on things because depending on who you listen to, we're either five or 15 years away from everybody's job being done by a computer that's smarter than the smartest person that we've ever met. When general AI shows up, then the only thing we'll have to offer is who we are because Mm. there's nothing that I, no idea that I can have that'd be better than, I'm never going to be as good at putting a widget on a thing as a machine is. And the machines that put widgets on things are only getting better, cheaper, faster, more efficient, safer, you know. So who we are and what we offer as as to who we are is going to be the value that we bring as we go forward. And it's it's really important. Yeah, I think the other lens on that is, you know, we're going through, basically, as you said, we're going through an exponential change in our capacity to create and deliver things as an economy, like an exponential change. And what we need to think about is what are we moving exponentially towards? You know, I I think for a really long time, the system of work has been driven by a combination of shareholder return and social anxieties. Shareholder return in the sense that the value we're trying to deliver is just that extra little bit of margin to our owners and social anxieties in the sense that the way we make decisions at work is from a lens of how do I fit in? How do I belong? How do I feel like I'm gaining status and and reputation? And I think that's a problem. I think capitalism has merits in the sense that competition does breed innovation. But at the same time, it's a zero-sum game. It basically means that if one company wins, others are going to lose. And in a world where we have scarce resources, that doesn't paint a pretty picture when we're moving somewhere exponentially faster. It means that we're going to move towards a whole bunch losing. And so I think what we need to think about as a group of people, as a community, as a society, is when we have this accelerated capacity to create and deliver things, what is it going to be guided by? What is ultimately the set of values or uh, the set of objectives that we want our organizations that are going to be even more equipped to deliver things in a kick-ass way to be guided by? And how do we make sure that those values and set of objectives are aligned to what's good for society as opposed to aligned to what's good for a very small group of shareholders? And I hope this moment right now in terms of the COVID-19 crisis is a moment where we realize we can't fuck that up. We need to build a resilient society and we need to do that by thinking differently about 
what our organizations are trying to achieve. Well, I've got to tell you, man, hearing you speak today and knowing where you are right now in business and that, you know, there's another 20, 30 years of you contributing to our culture and our community. It makes me feel happy to know that there are business leaders, and I know you're not alone. It makes me feel happy to know that there are business leaders like you challenging the, um, I'm the rich guy on a boat and fuck all the poor people today, stuff that happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And it makes me very happy to know that your vibe is out there in the world, mate. I really could speak to you all day, but I am now officially on takeover for baby time. So I'm going to have to go. You're an absolute legend. Let's go for a ride in a virtual world. Yeah, we'd love to do that. That was Adam Jacobs. Thank you so much to Adam for being a part of the show. Adam, of course, is one of the co-founders of the Iconic. I don't know. I have to tell you where to go and find that. He's also part of Hatch, which uh, you can go and find. It's a very, very interesting, interesting place. Thank you so much for being here, Adam. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy, for helping me make the show, cutting it up and putting it together as it was recorded through some wine. Do you know what this road would be really good? That's why we saw so many motorcycles. This is a really good motorcycle road. All I need is a motorcycle. I don't think my little scooter would do too well around here. It'd be, be fun. It'd be fun. Like Dumb and Dumber going up the hill. Yeah, totally. I did get a helmet for Audrey the other day, though, so we can nip down the road. Yeah, that's a whole part of the, you know, babysitter escape plan. Get a babysitter on the in the house. Audrey on the back of the bike. Go on. Scoot down to somewhere where you can't park. You know, down in Bondi or something. Get some. Vegan Lebanese street food in Bondi. That's the way, man. I tell you. Oh, a bit of booch. That's great. Thanks also to um, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of my life, and um, Haley on the socials and Mike Mills on the music. Go check out Toe Hider's new album. It's bananasly good. All right, I'll be back on Wednesday with the final episode of season two of Dad Pod. Peter Fitzsimons is our guest. Season two of Dad Pod is, let me say, it's I'm really it's fucking good, man. I'm really enjoying it. It's really, really good. Um, so if you haven't got stuck in a dad pod, it's there. I'd invite you to check it out. I'll be back on Friday. Until I see you next time, I'll, I'll keep you up to date with uh, Scott's outcomes. But yeah, until you see you on Friday, uh, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.